What's up, shipheads? It's Bull here. And I am Dez. And we are excited. We are here to announce the launch of our new feed, the Party Like It's 90s feed. Listen, everyone loves the 90s. It's one of the best decades out there. Just thinking back of that time in your life in the 90s. On this feed, we're going to be tackling all things from that decade. We're going to be taking our favorite show formats and bringing them over to do so. Dad, tell me a little bit about some of the film and TV content we have coming their way. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're going deep into the closet and we're taking out that FUBU jacket and we're putting new batteries into our Tamagotchi. So we're, we're ready to go here, Bull. And you've got all the franchises that you already know and love. You've got movie drafts, you've got Take 5, and you've got these deep dives that we do. And we're going to really just go right towards the 90s. We're looking at year by year, the best movies of the 90s. And we're doing draft style, head to head. Then we're looking at some deep dives. We're talking about all your classics from the 90s. The Big Lebowski, Hocus Pocus, Cool Runnings. There's all kinds of great deep dives we're looking into the 90s for this one here. And then you got your take fives, your top five lists of all the things 90s. So, you know, you're not going to want to miss any of this stuff. So get your Furbies all lined up and enjoy. If that wasn't enough, we're bringing in all the rest of our network in to join us in building out this feed. We're going to be bringing in the Scary Movie Project team to do horror-specific releases of the 90s. We're going to be bringing in the sports team to tackle the dream team drafts of the 90s, make the best super team, one of the best rosters. We'll be tackling all of that. And if that wasn't enough, we're going to be getting jiggy with it and taking our draft format and doing year-by-year music mixtape drafts. Build out your ideal mixtape for any given year. We're going to be going down the whole decade. If you love the 90s, if you were born and you lived through the 90s, if you weren't and you're jealous and you want to go back and see what everyone's going crazy about, this is for all of you. So make sure you subscribe. Lots of fun content coming your way. And we're going to party like it's the 90s. Yep. Welcome to the second episode of Something From Nothing. The first was kind of a whirlwind and I just kind of said hello and we went for it. So that begs the question whether or not I'm going to do some sort of introduction, if I'm going to do a monologue or not. And the thought certainly crossed my mind. If I was working with a co-host, we'd have some sort of banter and welcome and chit chat before we dove into the interviews and other stuff. But as I'm flying solo, I need to consider the monologue. And the thing is, I grew up in a time when monologues were big. I was a huge fan of David Letterman's monologues for sure. If I didn't have time to stay up for the whole show. I made sure that I caught his openings. Johnny Carson was a master of it for sure. John Stewart was terrific. And way back when he had his nightly network show, Dennis Miller killed in his openings. Right now, John Oliver is astounding on his show last week tonight. I have to be honest, as much as I admire these people, do I want to pretend I can do what they did and still do? Does anyone care? Does anyone really need more than a, hey, hello, before they're ready to dive into the stuff they came for? We'll see. I'm sure whatever I end up doing on a regular basis at the start of the podcast will be brief, very brief. In fact, let's just get on with it. Thanks for joining me for Something From Nothing. Today we'll talk Chicago, visit the comic book store, and we'll get weird. I'm Matt Betts, and you're listening to Something From Nothing.
Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Mark Boker, owner of Alter Ego Comics back in my hometown of Lima, Ohio. I really wanted to talk to him because uh, he's he's always been very supportive of my work and he's also been really supportive of the Lima community and all the, the comic nerds and geeks and all that fun stuff. Uh, he's done a lot of terrific events around Free Comic Day and for Halloween. So uh, it's good to have you here, Mark. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Hey, no problem. Uh, how are things back home in Lima? Things are really great. There, there are a lot of uh, building projects going on in downtown Lima. And as you know, we're right on Main Street in the heart of downtown. So we've got a, a college expansion. We've got a, a an outdoor amphitheater being built. And we're going through a renovation here in our building to welcome in some additional small businesses, as well as open a live event space. Wow, that's terrific. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on there. Um, what uh, let's go back to sort of the beginning with uh, with Alter Ego. What made you want to open up a comic shop? Well, it was not in my life plan uh, to open a comic <laughs> shop. Although Dad used to say that I told him when I was like eleven years old that I was going to to own a comic shop. But I've been a comic book fan since uh, Marvel Superhero Secret Wars came out in the 90s. I, I know you can relate to, to some of this. I think I have a few more miles on me than than you do. Uh, but <laughs> growing up in the 80s, it was the era of Star Wars and Star Trek and uh, Super Friends and Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And you just all that stuff was everywhere. And when I discovered comic books and specifically Secret Wars – that all of these Marvel characters were featured in one series. Uh, and a lot of characters, that was my first exposure to the X-Men, uh, to some of the Avengers. And so it was really just, it blew my 10-year-old mind, uh, or however old I was. It was about 10. And that was the that was the gateway drug for me. And I, I stayed a comic <laughs> book fan, uh, a closet comic book fan, because in the 80s and 90s, it was not cool to be a comic book fan. Yeah, not yet. Even my closest uh, high school friends did not know that I collected comic books <laughs> and went off to college, uh, got a degree in history, thought I was going to be Indiana Jones or uh, or become a high school teacher. And uh, that didn't happen. I ended up doing uh, some marketing gigs. And uh, when I moved to Lima in 2000, there was a comic store here and it was kind of the um, stereotypical comic shop. Uh, from the Simpsons, you know, kind of the Android's mm-hmm. dungeon, more of a boys club, sure. kept weird hours, didn't take credit cards, uh, had no internet connection, that sort of thing. So right, right. I, at first I went to the owner and offered to do marketing for him because my my goal was just to get more people reading comic books. And uh, that didn't work out because he didn't, I, I wasn't going to charge him anything, but he didn't want to spend any money to get people into his shop. <laughs> Right. So I actually started in started online first in 2003, uh, selling higher end Lord of the Rings statues, stuff from Sideshow Collectibles, uh, Gentle Giant, companies like that. We were dealing with statues and busts and action figures. And 18 months later, I realized, you know, I could quit my full time job and open a comic shop the way that I wanted it to be, the way that I thought our community needed it to be. And opened Alter Ego, the the brick and mortar store in 2005. And my competitor called me six months later and told me he was getting out of the game. (laughs) Asked if I wanted to uh, buy his inventory, which was also known as pay his diamond balance. (laughs) Yeah, that that was it. And we've been 
the only comic book store for several counties, which is, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but you know, our community is relatively small. You know, we, we live in a city of 40,000 people in a county of a hundred thousand people. And we've been here with our doors open since 2005. Wow. Yeah. I mean, growing up in Lima, I, I certainly remember there being shops on and off when I was younger. Uh, but I, I, you know, I don't remember any sort of permanent, uh, you know, one that lasted for, for very long. Um, but I do remember the, the, I believe the Lima Mall used to have two separate bookstores at one point. They had like a Walden Books and uh, B. Dalton's, I think. And so that was sort of my main, uh, my main source for a while there of comic books. But my gateway for it was uh, for comics, and and that was that I uh, saw Star Wars when it came out, and I loved it. I wasn't a big reader yet, but they, you know, first I bought the Star Wars comics that were the adaptations of the movie, and then they continued it, and it all new series, all new, you know, they had different adventures, different characters, and that's what kind of got me started was that, and then uh, Battlestar Galactica came out with a a good comic of that uh, did some continuing adventures. And uh, those kind of got me started on everything else. And I think eventually my first real superhero book that I didn't, you know, didn't get handed to by somebody else. The first one that I bought was probably an X-Men comic uh, when they started with The Brood. I remember that just being uh, uh, taken by this this cover of Wolverine and uh, one of The Brood. Had no idea who he was at the time or who they were, but really excited and, and, and read that. And then I kept uh, following them for quite a while. I mean, that was kind of the, the perfect storm of comics. I mean... Uh, although they weren't selling, you know, gangbusters the way they were in the, you know, forties and in the sixties, but mm-hmm. you know, that Chris Claremont, John Byrne, uh, Paul Smith era of, of X-Men, I, I know is, uh, holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts, including mine. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when you were talking about some of the things you were doing when you were starting there with Alter Ego, um, there, there is very much that stereotypical older comic store that only sold comics. But today, I think uh, shops have to do a lot more, uh, not just selling comics, but having uh, an online presence, having, like you said, uh, statues and busts of different characters and, and, and so many other things. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you never want to have all your eggs in one basket. And we really saw that. I, I don't want to jump ahead too much here, but we saw that during the first two months of the pandemic when Diamond Comic. Right. Uh, shut down and stopped shipping, right. s- stopped shipping new releases. So if you didn't have uh, a decent inventory of, of other stuff, whether it was graphic novels or statues or figures or back issues, uh, you were kind of out of luck for two months. Right. Yeah. You know, what we did is we, we took to the, to the interwebs. Uh, my wife and I started right. doing Facebook live sales of yeah. what we had. So every Wednesday night we would uh, go live at seven o'clock and it, it basically was a chance to talk to our community as if they were standing in, in the store with us. And, right. you know, it, so I could tell stories about why I liked a certain graphic novel or why my wife liked, liked a certain graphic novel or why a certain back issue meant something to me. And, you know, I think that's really what this industry is about. It's about those relationships. It's about making those connections over a shared interest. And uh, it, it worked out really well for us. I mean, we were generating a, a day's worth of sales in about an hour and a half, these live sales. And they, they were so successful that we continued to do them uh, after things kind of opened up again and new products started shipping again. 
So still every Wednesday night, that's our, that's our date night. We joke about yeah. it. We go through uh, the week's new releases and sometimes we'll have some sale items. Uh, and we've started hosting comic book creators. So uh, just last night we had Michael Walsh, who's the co-creator and the artist on the silver coin, which was published by image comics this week. And it's been fantastic. It's been great uh, to, to talk to some comic creators and to thank them and, and engage with them. But also our customers are getting a chance to answer to, I'm sorry, to ask questions well, yeah, I, I came to a, uh, quite a few of them over the uh, pandemic, and I ended up uh, uh, getting some, uh, I think I got some D&D figures because it was my son's birthday or something like that, and I knew he'd like them. And and when you showed up, you never knew what exactly you were going to be talking about that day or what you were going to be selling on that Wednesday. So it was always fun to show up. And, and not only that, but uh, as you looked down in the uh, down in the chat, you would see, oh, so-and-so made it, or no, they weren't here last week. And it was really kind of a, like you said, kind of a gathering to, to just even chat a little bit in, in uh, you know, whether it be virtually or whatever, and get together with people you haven't seen, or maybe you didn't even know, but got to know them through them showing up for these these uh, Wednesday night things. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely created a, a, a community, a sub-community, a community within our community <laughs> of uh, regulars that show up for this. And uh, one guy is a guy I went to high school with back in Detroit, and he still lives in, in the metro Detroit area. I didn't know he was a comic book fan. He graduated a year before <laughs> I did. And uh, after I opened the shop, he came down a couple of times, but his local shop ended up closing during the pandemic. And so now he's shopping with us and we're just shipping his stuff out. We've uh, got people that have just tuned in and we're, we've got customers now in multiple states, uh, in addition to our local folks that are shopping with us via the live sales. Now, we're still open. Um, we're actually only open four days a week, six hours a day. And we used to be open six days a week, eight hours a day. Um, but it's, I know it's unfortunately a little more inconvenient for our customers, but our revenue actually went up when we, when we reduced our hours. Wow. That's kind of a weird situation to be in. Uh, we are planning on extending those hours once we get through COVID here. Uh, but we do, we've got some customers that have, you know, very real health concerns, uh, health issues where they haven't been in the shop in over a year. You know, we're shipping their books out to them, you know, once a month or every couple of weeks. And we just want to make sure that our customers are safe, that they feel comfortable coming into the shop. And uh, right now, you know, with the world the way it is, we're still, you know, we're closed uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and we're open the rest of the days. All right. Um, I had um, a book that came out last April, and it was supposed to have a three-issue uh, comic book lead-up to it. We got the first issue out, and then, as you said, the the uh, distributor stopped doing it, <laughs> stopped distributing. And so we had that one issue, and then we had like three a three-month uh, gap uh, between to the to the second issue. But in the meantime, the book already came out. You know, it, it still came out in in uh, in April like it was supposed to. So. Uh, what else did you need to do? I mean, other than going online and, and, and really hustling, what what else did you have to do during the pandemic to, to keep the doors open? Well, um, part of it was it was almost like becoming a startup again, you know, reverting to startup mode and doing a lot of the work myself. Um, I still mm -hmm. kept most of my staff on board. But um, rather than expanding their responsibilities, I took on more responsibility to kind of help with payroll a little bit. And then, um, you know, inventory. Inventory management is huge when you're talking about any retail business. But, you know, comic books where you're dealing with 
you know, I don't know, 30 to 50 different titles every week. Uh, Every comic that sits on the stands after week one is money you may never get back, unfortunately. Right. We had to tighten up our ordering. Uh, We use a point of sale system called Comic Hub, which uh, a number of stores throughout the world are using right now. And it's really helped us communicate to our customers, asking them, you know, because you read title X, are you interested in title Y? asking them to pre-order a little bit more. And then really, I I think the industry as a whole, and especially Diamond and uh, some of the the publishers like Image and Boom and Vault, they're offering returnability on comics. So it allows us to uh, stock their books, to give their books a chance. And if our customers don't respond to them for one reason or another, we can return them. Uh, So that, that was kind of a new thing. And you know, I've taken a position with most of the indie publishers where if they're going to offer, if they're going to take a risk and offer returnability, I'm going to bring in at least, you know, a handful of copies for the store so that our customers have the choice of trying them or not. And I think that's exposed at least our customers and I think a lot of comic book readers to new material that they may not have tried uh, if that returnability option wasn't there. Yeah, cool. And and yeah, obviously uh, the smaller presses are uh, are you know, always looking to get a little more exposure for those titles. And, uh, that's a really great way to do it for them. Um, not that, not that Dark Horse is a, a small, uh, uh, press, but I started reading a, uh, their, uh, their copies of uh, resident alien based on the, which is, I think was from, man, it was like 10 years ago, I think originally or 2012, maybe based on the strength of the, uh, the sci-fi show. And had that show not been there, I certainly wouldn't have gone back and checked it out. And the artwork is stunning and the the stories are just terrific in there. And it's just a case of, you know, one thing leading to another. And I think that's the same case with like indies that are just looking for that little bit of exposure and getting that one person hooked and that person talking to another and another and another. Yeah. And and that's the benefit, again, I think, you know, of being in the comics community, of going to your local comic shop and talking with the staff there. You know, what are they reading? What do they recommend? You know, my my team has the uh, has the opportunity to read anything that's in the shop, and I encourage them to do to do read as much as they can. And I'm still reading, you know, new releases every Tuesday night, so that Wednesday I can talk to customers about what I enjoyed and what I think they might enjoy. So something like that, and then even Resident Alien, which uh, was kind of it was not a huge hit when it came out in in uh, single issue comics, and even now it's not you know it's not selling. Uh, awesome, to be honest. A lot of people aren't familiar with the show because uh, sci-fi doesn't necessarily carry the weight that it once did, and it's not included. Right, right. On all, it's not included on all streaming platforms. So, yeah, I mean, I, I watched it with uh, my whole family, and we enjoyed the heck out of that first season. If, if yeah. people haven't watched it, I highly recommend it. Alan Tudyk is hilarious. Mm-hmm. He's terrific. Really makes that show. But if people want to check out the source material, you know, Dark Horse has been great actually about keeping those comics available, those graphic novels available for us. I'd seen some previews uh, somewhere. And luckily, I can't remember if you download the sci-fi app or if you download like NBC's app, maybe the Peacock app. They gave us like four free credits to watch anything we wanted in their their little whatever their behind the paywall thing was. So we used all four of them to watch uh, the first few episodes of, of that. So it was, a, it was a great way to, you know, for them to give us a little bonus to go see it and got us hooked. So uh, well done for that, I guess. 
Um, I think one of the other things, in addition to, to shows like like that, I wanted to ask uh, what, what you think the big event movies are doing for comic shops like uh, Avengers and, and some Spider-Man and Justice League and things like that. Are they bringing people in to look at back issues or neural issues or, or have you seen much of a change? I, it, unfortunately, my message on that or my answer on that is the same as it's been for the last 16 years that I've been open for the most part. Blockbuster movies based on comic books do not move the needle in comic book shops. Yeah. It may bring in the occasional, you know, person that wants to wants to get into a Marvel series because of the Marvel movies. Um, but the the biggest, I, I would say, the Batman movies have were were very good about getting people to come in, and uh, you know, the, we would always point them towards Batman Year One and the Long Halloween and. Those were usually our two go-tos for people that like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Um, but the biggest the biggest one that has helped, I think, comic shops is The Walking Dead. And I'm pretty sure that oh, yeah. any comic shop owner that you talk to is going to agree with me on that, that Walking Dead viewers became Walking Dead comic book readers because of the TV show. That's the, the, the biggest thing. Uh, Watchmen has always been an, another good one. Um, with the Zack Snyder movie when it came out and then with the HBO miniseries, uh, we definitely saw an uptick, a, a renewed interest in Watchmen from new customers and casual customers. For me, I I don't I didn't find myself running out to to buy anything to to see the new stuff. I found myself running to my own collection and going back to show my kids. Well, this is where that character came from, and here was the first appearance of Hawkeye, and this was the you know stuff like that, and uh, just to really uh, give him an idea of the source material after we've watched the movie. Like uh, we're watching Winter Soldier right now, and I'm like, okay, this guy what used to be a good guy, you know, things like that, and and busting out the old stuff from my own collection. Yeah, I do the uh, exact same thing, uh, but my kids don't care. No, but <laughs> <laughs> right with uh, with uh, WandaVision, when when the kids came into the picture, I pulled out my copy of uh, the Young Avengers graphic novel and you know showed how nice. they they were using the comic book costume color you know color themes, and then the big one last week was uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier when they ended up in Madripoor. I went and grabbed grabbed my uh, some of my Wolverine comics and sh- the old uh, Chris Claremont John Buscema books and showed you know here here's the Princess Bar, <laughs> here's Madripoor. <laughs> right, right, and the, the, and they're good at putting the big things, but they're also good at little tiny details in the background or little tiny details in a name or a costume or a insignia that you, you're like, okay, I know where that's from. And what that could lead to this, you know? So it's really fun to geek out of those little tiny details they throw in there sometimes. Oh yeah. It's just been, you know, one thing after another, and, and we've got so much great stuff coming down the road on Disney plus with, yeah. uh, Loki, other, you know, the what if series and all kinds yeah. of stuff. And then eventually we'll get back to, to big screen movies and, uh, and or we'll be staying home and watching them, you know, on the same day that they're released, like Black Widow in July. Yeah, July. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm hoping, you know, I, I'm supposed to get my second COVID shot later this month. So I'm hoping that things will look good enough that I can jump into a theater by then. But but I'm, I'm willing to watch it at home. I've just it's just been a long time coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, one last thing, uh, you, you go through all the titles uh, when they when they come out, so you can talk to the customers the day before. What are some of your favorite uh, titles now uh, that are that are out that maybe are uh, flying below people's radar? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, great indie stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll touch on maybe a couple of the. You know what? I'll just I'll just vomit all over here and <laughs> great stuff. Sounds good. 
Because, um, first off, I've been really impressed by DC's output post-Future State. So DC was really, I think, struggling with, uh, with a lot of their books prior to Future State. And then Future State was a two-month break where they got to tell some self-contained you know, future type stories. And then they came back and, you know, they really have been hitting home runs with uh, Harley Quinn by Stephanie Phillips and uh, Detective Comics by Mariko Tamaki. You've got just, you know, James Tynion continues to tell great stories in Batman. I mean, who would have thought, who would think that there are still great Batman stories to tell, you know, 80 years into the character's history. But I, I really am feeling bullish on um, DC Comics output right now. Lots of good stuff. I'll switch over to Marvel for a second. And uh, Chip Zdarsky's Daredevil is top notch. Uh, Christopher Cantwell's Iron Man, top notch as well. Uh, so there, there are definitely books out there that are at the top of my reading stack from the big two. But uh, a lot of those same creators, I'm following their creator on stuff. So Zadarsky is doing Stillwater over at Image Comics, and that's a great Twilight Zone-esque story about a town where no one can die. Um, Stray Dogs from Image Comics by uh, Tony Fleeks is fantastic with amazing, amazing artwork. Uh, kind of a Silence of the Lambs meets uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Nice. <laughs> That's a good description. <laughs> and yeah, just anything. There, there's certain creators where I will read anything that they write. And art and the art plays a big part for me, too. Like if I if I don't like the art, I find it very, very difficult to enjoy the story. Uh, but there are so many books right now. And I've, I've been saying this for years, but I'll continue saying it. Maybe I'm biased because I own a shop. But I think <clears throat> comics as a as a complete package, comics are better now than they've ever been. Whether it's the the variety of titles and genres to choose from, or characters to follow, the production values, the artwork, the storytelling, just really, really excellent across the board. Yeah, I, I'd say I agree with you. And you mentioned Daredevil, and you know, I don't think it's a spoiler alert because this has been going on for a while. I like what they've done with that storyline, where Daredevil, I believe, has gone to prison, and his role has been taken over by Elektra, right? Yeah. Daredevil's been in prison before, I right. guess, more as Matt Murdock. And that's where you get into the weeds a little bit with uh, continuity and, and decades worth of storytelling. But, you know, Daredevil's in prison now uh, without revealing his identity. So his greed to go to prison adds Daredevil. Okay. But, you know, he knows that uh, someone needs to protect Hell's Kitchen. And so Elektra has stepped up and become Daredevil. She's Sorry. a female Daredevil. People know that there's a different Daredevil on the streets, but it's much more complicated and nuanced than that. Right. Right. Exactly. The yeah. reason that he turned himself in is because someone, you know, died as a result of, of, of his actions. Um, so it, it's just great to see these, these characters that have been around for so long and that many of us have grown up with continue to captivate us. And, and, you know, clearly that's, uh, all, all on the writers and the editors and the artists and the colorists and the letterers and the, you know, everybody that's involved in the process of making awesome comics. Excellent. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I agree. And I, every time I go, there's always titles that I want to, that I look at. And I'm like, I, I want to buy that one. And, and I just can't grab them all, but it's always exciting to see characters I might've known when I was a kid now having a different role now, or, you know, or that role has been taken over by somebody else. So it's really interesting to see them repurpose the character or the idea a little bit, but put that new twist on it. So, uh, it's very exciting. Uh, and, you know, I, I buy what I can and, uh, and try and keep up. 
Yeah. And it's, I always tell folks, you know, don't, don't burn out, <laughs> you know, don't, Right, right. And don't get, mm-hmm. uh, don't break up your relationship. Make sure you're still putting food on the table. And yeah, right. <laughs> I would love customers to buy everything, but I, as someone who uh, also has a budget, <clears throat> I understand that that's not possible. So, <laughs> you know, find the ones that you connect with the most. I, I firmly believe that there's a comic book out there for everybody. And even, you know, if you're not a, a Wednesday warrior and you're following single issue, not following single issues, my experience has been that new comic book readers and younger comic book readers are drawn more towards the collected edition slash graphic novel mm-hmm. format because they're getting more story in one sitting uh, instead of having to get, you know, it's the way we watch TV now. Sure. Episodic television, there is no more must-see TV. There's, hey, we just dropped a whole season of Stranger Things on Netflix and <laughs> we're going to burn through it in two days. So, and it's the same with uh, with you know with writers. You know, they want to buy a series. They don't want to buy the first uh, in a series and hope you're going to finish that series. They want to wait until you're done most of the time, so they can buy all three or all ten or twelve or however many are in the series. More often than not, yeah, it's. Uh, I think people have been burned in the past. I had a customer in last week, uh, a guy who'd been away from comics for a while and wanted to get back into it, but he's also a novel reader, and he mentioned uh, some specific titles where. It, you know, he's still waiting for, you know, the third book in this trilogy that's been taken 10 years to come out and betrayed by the by the writer. We've right. seen some of that in comics, too. But that's I, I am seeing more uh, customers uh, opt into miniseries versus, you know, something that they have to make a major investment in. I, I think the industry is, is paying attention to that. Uh, and and, you know, creators are looking at telling more. Uh, condensed stories instead of trying to draw it out for 20 or 30 or 100 issues. I mean, let's just tell the story that you need to tell. And if it takes five issues or 50 issues, you know, do the best uh, job you can do. Sure. And and, uh, Marvel used to do this. And that's kind of a lot of the Vision and Scarlet Witch came from their limited limited series, they used to call them, a four-issue limited series. And they told that whole arc within those four stories. Then they have repercussions elsewhere. But uh, they did that with uh, Wolverine as well. And they did it with uh, several others. And, and then those characters eventually started you know, filling out in their own series. But those events were, were something to look forward to and, and know that there was an end to that particular arc. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many people in uh, on the the professional side and the the decision making side of comics now that are in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties that grew up with comics that uh, we're seeing you know some familiar tropes come back around and we're seeing uh, you know some some interesting decision making that's maybe more in line with what you know people closer to that age and uh, those characters. I mean, they're going to be around forever. They are definitely the the Greek gods of uh, the 20th and the 21st century. And uh, people are going to be talking about Batman and Wolverine and Spider-Man long after we're gone. Right. right. Well, hey, um, I, I'm glad that you love what you're doing. Uh, and I'm thrilled that you're uh, there in downtown uh, Lima. Like I said, I, I love the events you put on and, and love showing up. Uh, and uh, I really want to thank you for stopping by today. Hey, it's my pleasure, Matt. Anytime. I always enjoy our conversations. All right. Thanks a lot. Mark Boker uh, from the Alter Ego Comics in my hometown of Lima, Ohio.
It's time for a segment we call Explain This To Me, and today we'll talk with author, poet, teacher, editor, and my part-time nemesis, Mercedes Yardley. How are you, Mercedes? I'm great. How are you, nemesis? I'm good. I mean, we had to go part-time because being a nemesis is kind of a, you know, it's it's rough when it's a full-time gig. You got to you gotta slide it in when you can. It used to be full-time, but we've, you know, we've matured since then. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. And we've got kids. We gotta, we actually have to feed them and, and make sure they get off to school and things. So we, we have other things to focus on occasionally. We're doing a segment called Explain This To Me. We've both picked out a few weird news stories uh, to share with each other and uh, with you, the listeners. And as David Letterman used to say, this is just an exhibition. It's not a competition. So please, no wagering on who has the best weird story. It's purely informative, okay? I have the best weird story. I, I think you might, uh, but I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to concede just yet. Uh, we'll start with a story of mine uh, that is, uh, you know, really as as a parent and as someone who grew up uh, with this particular toy, it kind of blows my mind. Uh, I got this from CBC Radio. Um, apparently, there is a huge black market for. Legos. This is uh, this particular uh, article talks about a, a gang of Lego thieves in in France, um, and I don't know if they meant for this to be. I'm sure they did to be a pun. They said they're building a case against these thieves, so I'm assuming that was a Lego pun. But uh, do you, were your kids ever into Legos? Um, my husband's into Lego. Yeah. And so the kids have a whole bunch of different sets <laughs> right. that he, you know, builds for them. We just sure. got the Jurassic Park set and with like the little balls that they sit in. We, I mean, we, we, we have a lot of Legos. Uh, the kids don't play with them nearly as much. I, I play with them, when, you know, when I was a kid, I had my own little sets. The, the reason these things are so lucrative for thieves now is because they have these sets that are, you know, hundreds of dollars. Uh, you know, some of the bigger Star Wars ones, and, and I'm sure there are others, you know, they run into the, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars, if not more. And so, you know, if you steal one of those, you've 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 definitely, you know, made your your money for that day. Right. They have this. And I I, I, I was reading in here that the ones that are, you know, uh, discontinued, there's a haunted house set. Right. A discontinued haunted house set. If any French gang of thieves would like procure one. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll, we'll send you an address and, uh, you know, or a P.O. box. Mom, the French thieves are here. <laughs> you'll, you'll have to be more specific, which which French thieves. But I mean, they have Lord of the Rings. They have giant, uh, some of the Harry Potter ones are really big. At this point, any of the specialized ones that my kids had uh, that, you know, we bought for them, we've kind of like sort of cannibalized them to make our own thing. There's no longer, you know, there's no longer the Star Wars Little Millennium Falcons. We didn't get the big one. That's very expensive. Uh, but they're they're incorporated into something else. Or um, we'll take these big tubs of Legos and we'll just have a build day with me and the with the boys and we'll just create whatever we can create. Um, we're not so much collecting them at this point. Well, we have like, you know, Jurassic Park, a whole bunch of the Elsa and the, the Disney ones. And so we have a lot of Disney princesses hanging out of the jaws of velociraptors. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay. Barbie goes to Jurassic Park and uh, right. bad things. Uh, I used to work not that long ago, actually, at a uh, Barnes and Noble. And, uh, you know, I didn't really think about it. But, you know, Legos were, were always something that was stolen quite a bit. Those are things we had to put alarms on because, you know, we knew that was going to come around and usually around the holidays. But um, I never considered that there might be an organized ring of people going out and and, and you know, just to steal those and take back to the, the headquarters or wherever they take them, you know. I just think that is so, so very French. <laughs> That's, yeah, only the French would do that, but organized to steal Legos. I think it said in here there was also like a Polish. 
Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I saw that. Yeah. Like competing thievery ring. <laughs> it's an international Lego thievery ring, which. We're missing out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's let's meet up in uh, somewhere in the middle and we'll uh, we'll take the um, the mall for all it's worth. That sounds great. <laughs> all right. So that's my first story. What You've got a terrific story about some weird weather uh, in New Jersey. Yes. I, I found this amazing story about a worm NATO. A worm NATO. A worm NATO. <laughs> I like how it kind of rhymes with Lego. So we have right. NATO. There you go. And that's going to be the next set I steal. Right. <laughs> this woman was out walking and she saw just thousands and thousands of worms all over the, after a rain, um, mm. on the cement. And then she found where they had formed this circular <laughs> worm NATO where it looked like they were just, you know, it looked like the, the, the ring or. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. That's a great picture. This is from uh, Live Science. Um, you can probably look that up on, on Live Science or I'll put it into the show notes if, uh, when we do it. But it, it does. It looks like something. It, it almost looks like a painting of someone's eye or, or something. But it's all of these worms just zipping around. <laughs> I just I mean, I look at that and, it, you know, I'm from the desert where there's it rains sometimes. So, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes we get earthworms, but I've never seen anything like that. And that that would be enough to end me. Right. Oh, man. I mean, you know, we, we get, you know, we find a few worms on the sidewalk after a heavy rain, but we do, I've never had a worm NATO that uh, that I can speak of. I want the phrase, I've never had a worm NATO on a, on a T-shirt for you. There you go. <laughs> I've never. Well, I mean, you and I are both uh, horror writers. We should, you know, Sharknado did so well. I mean, they have five Sharknados. Let's do worm NATO. We'll do worm NATO. I'll wear, I'll wear stilettos and we'll do that for the cover. There you go. <laughs> Worm NATO, uh, which almost sounds like it's a, uh, a gathering of countries made up of worms, you know, Worm NATO, oh my goodness. Uh, the governing body for that. Well, that could be just as scary as, a, as an actual Worm NATO, I think, if we started getting political with worms. Oh, but just imagine Worm NATO, you know, in a, in a, in a windstorm. Actual <laughs> Worm NATO. And they'd like slap their little worm faces against your face as you're walking. I oh, see it. Man. It's wet and it's sticky. <laughs> Uh, and I see this thing. Uh, they go on talking more about worms, <laughs> the cause of the Hoboken worm NATO. I like that. It's a Hoboken worm NATO. And uh, uh, the aquatic worms such as the California black worm can form an enormous living knot known as a blob of as many f- as 50,000 worms. Yeah. It's <laughs> known as a blob? That's what they, that's what they call it, the, a blob. The blob NATO of worms. <laughs> I'm telling you, we've got series gold here. We've now that we've got it out on the air, people are going to steal it from us if no, we don't hurt. We're going to have it written by Tuesday. They, <laughs> I think that's how they did the Shark NATO scripts. I think they I, had I them think written. You're in. right. So uh, our last story that I've got here is, um, I mean, you and I, you know. Both travel quite a bit. I mean, we go to conferences a lot. And uh, unfortunately, this last year has, you know, not just us, but everybody has had to curtail their travel. And and a lot of the conferences are getting, you know, got canceled. And uh, they're still doing that. Uh, You know, they're still trying to to get back to a a normal conference, but most of them have gone virtual. So I sent you this story about Taiwan, who, um, well, they have a way of sort of getting around that or, or sort of curing people's wanderlust or their desire to stand around at an airport, um, they do fake flights. Um, you can pack your bags. You can go and wait in line at an airport. They give you a, a, a fake itinerary. 
and then you go through passport control and you go through security and then you even get to go on board the plane and sit down and put your baggage where, you know, where it goes. The plane just doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> That's as far as it goes. This is uh, supposed to be, you know, filling people's need to, uh, you know, feel that experience of, 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 of going to an airport, but they don't fly anywhere. That's kind of, I don't know, they're focusing on the wrong part. <laughs> it's usually the destination, I think, not the sitting in an airplane part. My favorite part was the woman that was like, she took her young son with her. Right. I think, oh, the best part of my time is always getting my kids through security. Oh, that gosh. is, you know, yeah. when I look forward, it's not the vacation. It's the right. taking off their shoes. That's right. <laughs> it's taking everything okay. out, having them all cry as they get wanded. You know, I right. love that part. Right. Can you you, you got to pull that stuff out of your backpack. You can't, you don't know all of it out. You got to pull the electronics out. Put that, you got to put that yeah. out of your hand. What do you yeah. have in your grubby, grubby <laughs> hand? Why, why is the alarm going off? What's in your pocket? What's in your pocket? Plate in your head. <laughs> I wonder if they actually caught somebody with something going through security, like the buzzer went off. It wasn't anything big, but what would they do if someone on a fake flight was trying to smuggle Hijacks something on? plane. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, okay, this plane's going nowhere, and it's going nowhere fast. Hijackers have been feeling pent up and pent. That's, that's right. They're People like, just, let's just let's just practice. Yeah, that's right. We need a drill. It also seems like yeah. a Disney ride, though. It does kind of. <laughs> Where you get on one, but usually they like show you something. You know, I mean, what's this going to show? Like, <laughs> here we're gonna we're gonna simulate clouds, and now it's it, darkness. It's a really small world, after all. Really small world. See, look out your windows. There it is. All right, everybody off. There you go. There you go. We're going to, we're going to like, you know, if they're at least, here's the the Eiffel Tower. We're going to show it real quick. Look out and you see the Eiffel Tower. There there you go. I mean, right. I imagine it's kind of like Aladdin's carpet ride, only you don't do anything. <laughs> but what's, you know, the, yeah, it, but what's fun is the, you know, the, the end of it, it talks about how well Taiwan has done. Uh, they, you know, the pandemic has, uh, you know, they've really had some really effective uh, prevention. They've had, you know. They've really taken the steps to keep people as safe as possible and, you know, that they still get, but they, they warn against, uh, you know, any, any overseas travel. So this is, you know, even though they're doing well, everyone else is screwing it up for them and they got to pretend. Kudos to them for thinking outside of the box. Right. That is the worst possible box. <laughs> they're fill, they're filling a need. Just the idea, like, Matt, let's go, let's go deep plane. Wouldn't that just be fun? <laughs> Right. Oh my! Yeah, the the worst. Here's here's the worst two parts of travel. Get it. Find your seat and shove your stuff above it. And now, get your stuff and and wait in line to get back off the plane. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, be a fist fight yeah. or two. Right. There's some kid throwing his Legos that he stole from the French. That's right. That there's what he would get arrested for. It's somebody trying to smuggle Legos on the fake flight. Where, where do you think you're going with these? Apparently, I got on the wrong one. <laughs> Oh, well, I don't know that we had a competition there, but they were those were very fun. The worm NATO is just a terrific story. And, you know, I would love to see more worm NATOs uh, around the country, around the world, really. If anybody's got footage of a worm NATO, please send it to us at sfnpod at google.com and, and we will put it up somewhere. But uh, we have uh, hit our, th our three stories. So uh, I think that brings an end to explain this to me. So thanks a lot, Mercedes, for uh, taking some time out and, uh, and talking weirdness with us. Always a pleasure. I know how hard it is for you to talk weirdness. I know. It's tough. All right. Well, we will talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot.
Thanks so much for joining us. Our guest today is Cynthia Palayo. She's the author of Letteria, Santa Morte, The Missing, and uh, Poems of My Night, all of which have been nominated for International Latino Book Awards. Her recent novel, Children of Chicago, has garnered great acclaim. She holds a Bachelor of Arts in Journalism, a Master of Science in Marketing, and a Master of Fine Arts in Writing, and is a doctoral candidate in business psychology. She was raised in inner city Chicago and here to talk about it. Thank you so much for joining us, Cynthia. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, we met at uh, StokerCon in uh, Grand Rapids and uh, had some great adventures there, but I'm missing uh, the conferences. You know, I, I don't know. Are you much of a conference goer? I, I, that's probably the only one I think I've seen you at. I tend to... I mean, I'll go to like local events. Um, I'm also a member of, um, in addition to the Horror Writers Association, I'm also a member of the Mystery Writers. Um, they hold like regular, well, before pandemic, they would hold regular meetings and we would have lunches and just outings. And so, mm. um, so I miss going to readings. So I was kind of a frequent attendee of readings in the Chicago area. I, I just enjoy being at a bar with a beer, yeah. you know, fellow authors and just having a nice time. Yeah, I, I was just talking to somebody and, you know, for me, going to conferences and going to readings and things like that is just like a great uh, recharge for me. You know, it's it's not just, you know, getting to sit there and talk to people and, and meet new people, but hearing them talk about their work or hearing them read from their work uh, really energizes me and gets me excited to get back and start creating on my own. So uh, I'm really missing things for this last year or so. Yes. And I think yeah. one of the benefits of conventions is that you come back because it's not just, I mean, there's workshops and, you know, if you're not, if you're kind of an introvert like I am and maybe you're a little shy to meet people, you can still go to the, you know, workshops and panels and the discussions and readings. And I always come back feeling really motivated and just, you just get tons of great ideas from just being around a bunch of creatives. And, and that's what, you know, the whole convention, you know, like, for example, SokerCon yeah. benefits. It's like it's once a year where you have, you know, a few days to hang out with, you know, people in your community. You know, even though I am um, positioned more in the horror space, I like mm -hmm. still think of myself as a just a writer. Like, I feel like I play with a lot of genres, but sure. um, I do prefer horror elements and so it's nice to kind of come together with a lot of like-minded people that you know consume a lot of the similar media that I consume and and just talk and get ideas and know what's and kind of gets a handle on just like the market and trends and what we're all working on sure oh absolutely um, I, uh, I was going through my notes as I, well, as I was making the notes, I realized that, uh, a lot of my stuff, uh, talking to talk to you about today is, is sort of a string of me congratulating you for things. You have this really terrific, uh, uh, line of great news going on and so many, uh, terrific acknowledge, acknowledgements of your work. Uh, I just have to say congratulations before I even get started. It's gotta be pretty exciting for you. It's it's funny because it's like, I'm just so tired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like yesterday. So for example, I, I recently signed, so I have a, my literary agent that I've been with since 2018. Mm -hmm. I just recently signed with a film and TV agent and it was like, great here. I signed it. Um, 
emailed it to you and, you know, I'll announce it. All right, I got to go outside with the kids now. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, I, I understand that. I mean, my kids are sort of, you know, they ground you in things where it's like, you can be very excited and they can be excited for you, but immediately my kids have me move on to something else, you know? You know, my film agent's like, great, we're going to like, you know, shop this around and see what we can do. And I'm like, great, I got to go change a diaper. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It's a glamorous life that writers lead, you know? Yeah, and it's, you know, a lot of it is, um, you know, I, I've been, you know, I've been writing, a lot of it seems like, I mean, it, it, it is, I, I think it's just kind of, everything's just kind of like colliding mm -hmm. now, or like, the right. are finally all falling together, like they've been stacked for a long time. Sure. I've been writing since 2000, and, writing fiction since 2008, like before that, like in my late teens, I was a community journal, like my late teens to mm. 30. I was a community journalist in the Chicago area. I mean, I have my day job, but those were always, yeah. I was always writing at night. So, so I've been writing for a long time. I just, I did uh -huh. take a break four or five years. I kind of just, yeah. just to kind of like decompress and take care of family and help. Yeah. That. But it's good. Things are good. Yeah. Uh, your recent collection of poetry into the forest and all the way through, uh, which kind of, which explores true crime uh, through, through poetry uh, centered around uh, missing and murdered women in the U S uh, along with, I need to believe, have both been nominated for a, a Bram Stoker Award. Yeah. Yes, that's that's a huge deal. <laughs> that's yeah. Super exciting. I mean, it's like it's like a life. It's, it's a life goal. It's a dream to sure. to to say that you're nominated. And I mean, I I I think I was uh, it, back to my children, two or three a.m. with my little one, and. You know, the email had gone out and I didn't even, I hadn't had even checked it. <laughs> I was getting these messages like, hey, your email. And I'm like, no, I have like a mad three-year-old on my shoulder. I can't <laughs> right. computer. And they're like, I think you need to go check your email. <laughs> Scared. Because I thought, oh my God, did something happened? Did someone get sick? And so, and I, I totally just forgot that the announcements were coming out. So it was just a great shock. And, you know, and then I had right. to to the three-year-old <laughs> again yeah it's those little moments of joy and then you got to go back to what you're doing yeah uh but those those awards are uh, um are just a few weeks away and i was looking at your twitter and this would be a very it's, it's a big year for latin voices uh, especially with stokers um you're one of two uh puerto rican authors and uh, also a Mexican-born author, uh, Silvia Moreno-Garcia, that have been nominated for this. And, uh, and uh, like I said, I was looking at your your Twitter, and it's a it's a really big deal that this hasn't happened before, or or anywhere close to this. It's happened once because um, I was I had a <laughs> officially like pulled in Brian right. to like do some investigative work for me. So it seems like um not seems like but the, that honor goes to Gabriel Rodriguez who illustrated joe hill's lock and key oh okay yeah so that one he won uh so he and he was he's chilean born mm -hmm. the first latinx but if gabino iglesias or i win or both we would be the first i would be the first puerto rican born woman he would be the first puerto rican born man or just first puerto ricans overall and then sylvia moreno garcia uh, for Mexican Gothic, if she wins, she she would be the first Mexican-born author. Authors being uh, nominated, and all of us in different categories: Gabino in long fiction, uh, Sylvia for uh, novel, uh, myself for poetry, and short nonfiction. So it's it's just exciting to see that you know um, 
Latinx voices, you know, we have a range, you know, we read yeah. different, you know, it could be, you know, we all write between Gabina, Gabino and Sylvia and not myself. We write very different stories. Um, so it, it is exciting to see that, that the recognition is, but it's a huge honor. Uh, you know, this is um, your peers, you know, vote. Right. It's something that I've just been thinking a lot about, like, you know, being grateful and thankful um, to the community because they've read my work and I, I want to thank them. And so I think the way I can thank people is just to continue trying to be as a role model to mm. newer writers and the indie writing community and just to continue writing and be, I guess, be myself. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I, I, I follow you on Twitter and, and uh, Instagram and everywhere, and you are very supportive of the community. I, you know, I see you you know, giving advice and, and, and just being there to, to like and lend support uh, through social media quite a bit. And uh, that's not something every author does or every author feels like they, they have to do. Yeah. And I, you know, I've, I've, part I've been a mentor in um, Pitch Wars. I'm also a, a mentor through Horror Writers Association, um, where I have a mentee there. And I feel like it's important, you know, just speaking from my own experience, you know, I, I was lucky enough that I was able to get a, a master's of fine arts in writing. So I had a writing community in a sense mm -hmm. going through that program. And still it was really isolating because it was a non-genre program. Right. I just remember kind of having to persevere through that really tough environment. And I remember thinking, gosh, if I just had more support, would my career track look a little different today? Sure. Right. I want to make sure that, I mean, I think it's a quiet, it's like an unsaid thing that if you're a new author or a newish author, and if you email me, I mean, I will look at something that you want me to look at. If I have, and I was on the phone the other day with them, there was a new author that had a question about representation, if they should be doing a certain thing with their writing mm. presentation and I was they asked if I had a minute and I was like sure here's my phone number and they were like wait what <laughs> <laughs> right like I'm just at home and so I don't think I mean not everybody's like that I I'm thankful I have the time right now we will all have time we're all home kind of right right uh, it's my way of giving back I feel like and just I mean give me, I wish so, I wish someone had done that for me yeah, I had sort of the same experience through college that you know they didn't have a, a, a genre fiction writing, and whenever I you know was taking a, a class, they were not thrilled that I was trying to do sci-fi. They wanted you know serious novels, and and uh, really had no support from uh, from the the faculty that I uh, I went to. You know, they all were aiming at this one sort of thing where I didn't want to go. Mm -hmm. So I understand completely, and um, so. On this podcast, I kind of like to, you know, talk more about, you know, your process and and, and sort of how things uh, go for you as a writer. Um, for me, the urge to write probably came from the fact that I had a lot of readers in my family. Uh, my dad, my grandpa, my aunt, they're all huge readers and there were books everywhere, well, especially my grandpa had books everywhere. But uh, my my dad, and my aunt just read constantly. Um, so it kind of felt natural to tell stories. How about how about you? What kind of got you started as a storyteller? What made you interested in starting to to, to tell uh, uh, your own stories. Sure. So, um, so my parents, um, my parents have limited education. So each of my parents have a sixth grade education. And so they really can't read, um, much. Okay. 
what my what we always had in the house though was the Chicago Sun Times newspaper, um, and that the reading level for the Chicago Sun Times I believe um, back then was like at the mm. grade level enough that my dad could always read the paper. Mm. We would always always have the Chicago Sun Times. We would get the newspapers from Puerto Rico home as and like there was like at that time there was there was um, you can get the Puerto Rican newspaper from. I mean, no one gets. Not a lot of people read the newspapers today. Mm, right. But we, so we always had newspapers in the house. And that was, I remember waking up and my dad at the, paper, at the table reading a newspaper and we would always watch the news. Like I watched, we would watch the morning news, the evening news. And so that was always like instilled in me, like you have to know what is going on in the world. And so my undergrad was in journalism because I thought I'm going to be a newspaper reporter. And that was my goal to be a newspaper reporter just because mm. That was important. That was so important to my dad. You have to read the paper every day. Even like right. my dad will call me. Did you watch the news? <laughs> know anything? You know, he still tells me that I don't know anything. And he's like 75. <laughs> Convinced that I don't read enough of the news. And so that in a way is how I got involved in stories and telling people stories. But after a while, you know, it was hard. It's hard to make a living back. Well, it was hard back then to make a living as a newspaper reporter. So I, I started working uh, full-time in marketing. Mm-hmm. My full-time job in marketing research at night, I was a you know newspaper reporter. Then papers just started closing left and right. Yeah. I realized I still wanted to tell stories, but it, it community reporting in Chicago just became emotionally draining. Mm-hmm. And so then I was like, well, maybe I'll go and get an MFA and do creative nonfiction. Right. And I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is, uh, you know, it's a really competitive school to get into. I think they only accept like 20 people in the MFA. And I know it's just a very, it was a very tough school to get into. Sure. Oh, yeah. A lot of scrutiny, even with my application. I remember my application was originally denied because it was like, you're not a fiction writer. They allowed me to make my case of why I should be accepted. Hmm. And I said, because I want to tell stories. Like, you know, I, I feel like I have something here. And so what slowly started happening, I would start writing stories or creative nonfiction pieces and they would turn into horror. <laughs> right. Graduate advisor is like, you're a horror writer that doesn't know you're a horror writer. <laughs> right. I hate to tell you this. Tell you this, but um, so that's what you see now a lot in my more recent work. My, like my work during my MFA and right after Loteria, Santa Muerte, The Missing, those stories are very embedded in Latin American folklore, legend, and myth. At the time, I felt like there wasn't any stories like this, and I had to get them out. But things like Children of Chicago, they're very reflective of um, my life as a journalist. So you'll see a lot of nonfiction um, history in that tale. You'll see a lot of genre bending, um, mysteries, uh, thriller. So... I feel like my newer works, my newer short stories are more reflective of maybe my career as a writer. Answer of saying where my stories come from. <laughs> no, that's terrific. That's, uh, that's, that's great. Was there ever a point where you felt like you had to make a decision between poetry and fiction? Or has that always just been sort of something you do both of? Or, you know, how, how did that kind of come about? Poetry is, for me, poetry is much easier to write than, than fiction. Like, I, I mean... It's the way I, I'm not a musician, but I feel like the way I write poetry is probably the way musicians create music. Like I feel I, it's more of a physical motion. It's, it's, it's very, um, 
when I'm writing poetry, I think everybody in the house knows to stay away from mom. <laughs> right. Pacing. And it's very like, it's this very like interactive process that I go into. Like it was almost like this weird trance like state that I go into when I write. Poetry. Oh, yeah. But fiction, I, I think of fiction like math. Like I sit down and I'm plotting things and I'm writing the logic and the reason why things are so. And I mean, by day I'm a, I'm a, I'm a researcher. So it, it feels like more, it, there's just so much more thinking behind fiction. Right. I have to have the idea really down set because I know if I'm going to write a poetry collection, I'm probably going to be locked in a room hour, yeah. especially with something like Into the Forest and all the way through. That was a very like emotionally charged piece of work. Mm -hmm. It's a poetry collection of murdered women. There's over a hundred poems in that collection, and I wrote two per state. And so it was, you know, you I had to be emotionally invested into that work in order for it to come across the way it did. So yeah, I mean, you would have to do the the research alone for that has to be very draining and very, you know, a a whole separate uh, emotional state. You know, just to pick out what you're who you're going to talk about or what the what what the crime is that you're going to talk about i i, I you know as a for i used to be a reporter as well i used to be a uh, a radio reporter that was out in you know uh, in a very small town, so very little happened. But going out to murder scenes and going out to, you know, uh, a, a, I remember a drowning and things like that. It was just draining to get the information for the story, let alone get back there and, and figure out how to write it in, in such a way that, you know, made sense and it, it conveyed something about that person, you know. Uh, so I can, can't imagine going through doing two per, two of those per state and, uh, and then having, and then putting it back the way you did as, as poetry. Right. So it's, it was essentially that. So it was like case I'm delving through like FBI, you know, whatever their database and going through local, you know, newspapers and news stations. And, you know, each case took me hours and hours to research. And Mm. once I felt like moment that I felt like I am overwhelmed and consumed with the tragedy of this case that I knew I can jump in and start writing. So it wasn't like I would read something and then write, like I would, read so much that I would become so like overwhelmed. And so now once you, once you had those done and out, did you have trouble letting go of those? I mean, certainly to invest that much of yourself in it, uh, it'd be hard to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you would be relieved to not have to go through all that information again, but I, it would probably be hard to let go once you've got that emotion. I was happy once I got them out. I felt like here they are for, cause I, I look at them as people like here they are for you to read. What was hard for me was when I had to stop, mm-hmm. I felt like, like there were so many cases that I wanted to keep writing about. And I felt like, damn, like they were forgotten. And now I don't have an opportunity to include them in this collection. So it was, um, that was the hardest part for me was, mm. was time to say, I can't include anybody else. And, I mean, I thought about some continuation type project or something else to expand mm-hmm. on it, but I just, I don't know yet. Like, I feel like I don't want it to feel like I'm um, being exploitative. Right. So that's why I'm still kind of, I mean, I feel like the work, I feel like I was able to do what I intended with that work. I just wish I could have done so much more for, for them. Right. Right. But yeah, I I can see having trouble going back and revisiting that. Um, 
in, in many ways. Like you said, you don't want to be exploitive about it, but uh, you hate to leave something that feels unfinished. You know, uh, I was watching, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, the, I think it's Netflix. No, it might be HBO. The uh, I'll Be Gone to the Darkness. I think in the beginning of it, uh, they were talking about um, that she discovered the case and then uh, you know, was looking at it and said that, uh, you know, this case should be solved. And then from there, she just couldn't really let it go. It, it was not, it was at least an obsession, if not something worse, you know, she said. So to be able to walk away from that, you know, would have been tough for her. But I, I can see where you're saying, you know, you don't want to go back and look at it again and again from the same sort of perspective once you've gotten this far. Yes. And I, I mean, and the way I've, I mean, I, I assume a lot of true, true crime. I have discussions on true crime. I, I've written a few essays and I, I'm like a little like amateur sleuth. <laughs> I have like my own code name in like right. uh, sleuthing websites. Sure. I mean, I like to, they're groups that all they do is research cases um, voluntarily and I'm part of some of those. And yeah. I just feel like a lot of these cases, I can't let them go. And right. I wish I had time to devote, you know, with the writing. But, you know, there's been a few cases that I've really obsessed over with. They talked about those boards and those groups uh, in that in that particular uh, series, I'll Be Gone in the Darkness. I think they also talked about it. And I can't think of the name of the hotel now where the uh, the girl uh, went up on the roof and they found her eventually. And yeah. I think a lot of amateur sleuths were really involved in that and went to the hotel and like we're doing their own sleuthing. You know, let me go to the room or let me go through here and see if I can figure out how she got from here to there. Um, it can be a, it can be an obsession, especially when you know there's an answer there. Right. And it's and then it's hard, too, because you get people that become that then it feels like it's exploitative. Right. Like there was. Yeah. A, right. Who went to the Cecil like nine times. And it's. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it does. I mean, it feels like if that's your if that's your thing and you're not an actual cop, you know, if that's if that's all you you do is keep going back there looking for answers. It does feel like you're looking for some attention for yourself rather than trying to figure this out. It's a very difficult. Um, it's a very, it's, you know, and I I mean, I know law enforcement are under as much scrutiny today as they've probably been in a long time. But, I, you know, I do. I have spoken with a lot of law enforcement um, and detectives that, I mean, work tirelessly. Like, you know, right. I don't even know when they sleep and they're trying to solve cases. And so there are some people that and, you know, they I don't want their case to be interfered with. And that's what that's the risk with some of these sleuthing communities that you can yeah. throw a wrench into something and maybe spook a suspect and he takes off and right. there goes my case. Um, or or uh, to the other effect, constantly bringing them what they think is a new lead or bringing that, you know, taking their time when they could be out doing something else. Right. So. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's go from that uh, into Children of Chicago. What, what makes, how do you get started on this project? What, what draws you into this one? The idea of Children of Chicago came about in maybe 2009. So I had the idea for a long time. I, I mean, in my MFA, since you know it was a non-genre type, mm. I was still really heavily drawn to genre. I, I, was, I guess I had the opportunity to shape my own program. And so I studied whole the Grimm's fairy tales um, mystery, the mystery genre pretty extensively. And I really... Um, just became uh, became obsessed with fairy <laughs> and how they're just some really dark fairy tales. And so I came up with the idea of, well, what if we all know Chicago from 
the media, mm-hmm. you know, it's like we're looking yeah. at crime. And so I thought, well, what if children are being encouraged to kill? And I mean, mm-hmm. crime in Chicago, it's, I think we just had like a 14 year old or a 13 year old was just shot and killed by a police officer last week. We, I mean, we've had mm-hmm. crimes where they're getting younger and younger, um, either whether police involved or, you know, youth on youth crime. And so I thought, well, what if there is a supernatural entity? Um, and what if it's related to the fairy tales? Because you, you think fairy tales are sweet and dear and they're really mm-hmm. dark. And so, and then I wanted to make it a detective. No- I wanted to make it a detective novel, a mystery, a thriller, just kind of like this genre bending exploration of fairy tales. And I wanted to make the argument that because of Chicago's violent history, that we keep repeating our problems and that because of our park system and how you know dark and creepy some of our architecture is and park land that it's the perfect place for a dark fairy tale that was my argument with but i hope that i was able to and it's um not a happily ever after fairy (laughs) not that kind of fairy tale and i wanted it to feel like one of these really grim grim's fairy tales that end Mm -hmm. i mean cinderella ends and the sister's eyes are being pecked out by birds and right there's another fairy tale where um, the stepmother fed a child to her husband. So some of these fairy tales are so gruesome and ghastly. And I create a modern fairy tale where it's like, and, and again, make it a genre bending book and give it a nod to old school, hard boiled crime, old school, noir, American noir fiction where nothing ends well for anybody. Well, and, then, and like you said, that's kind of the way they, they originally ended most of those fairy tales anyway. But um, so I like the fact that from the very beginning, you wanted to make it sort of genre bending and, and, and combine these things. So so how, how did you start? I mean, obviously, uh, along the way, you had to do a lot of research again on on crime and, and, and the area, but you already knew Chicago fairly well. So where did you where did you start? So I do a lot of research for my for my work. Mm, I think. Yeah. I mean, like if you look at Into the Forest, there's probably like hundreds, hundreds of hours of research in there. I would think Children of Chicago, there's easily, I mean, there, there's like thousands of hours I would <laughs> research in there just because I've read, I've read all the Grimm's fairy tales probably twice, minimum twice. Um, and so I've read a lot about fairy tales, the construction of fairy tales, um, the influence of fairy tales and horror. Um, I also went through and started reading more about Chicago history, even though I know a lot of Chicago history because I studied it pretty well in college, but um, trying to see which historical elements to kind of compare and contrast. And then um, studying um, noir and hard-boiled fiction, like how how do those detectives behave? Like what are the mannerisms of those detectives? And so when you think of like noir, um, you know, these are really, you know, the, the tough guys of like, you know, Raymond Chandler, uh, or, or were you being more towards like television or movie uh, detectives or, or from novels? Novels from novels or even like mm-hmm. even television. Cause I had, yeah. I had like a lot of imagery in my head of, yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. should, of what they should look like. Yeah. And I wanted the detective to be a woman and I wanted her to be Latina, which is probably at least I've never seen, um, a Latina detective that comes off as cold and detached and plays the role of villain in a sense. I mean, she is, she's neither, she's the protagonist, but she's never, she's neither 
good nor bad. I mean, you have to kind of read it to see where sure. it goes. But right. that's, I think that what, what's been interesting with readers is that it's not a happily ever after story and right. not a protagonist that find that wants, she, she neither wants redemption nor does she find it or seek it. That kind of threw readers off like, Oh, there's no happily ever after. And it's like, you know, it's, it's a crime story and right. it's based off of, in a sense, the true crime of missing and murdered children in Chicago and how it doesn't end well. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not ending well. I still, I live in inner city of Chicago. I could, you know, I'm looking out my window at a major street and, you know, sometimes you'll hear sirens. Sure. Yeah. I get, there's gunshots in my alley. You know, I, there was a shooting in my alley last summer. Um, so I, I lived this. And so to, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't want to end it happily ever after because I wanted to kind of say, children are still killing children. Right. And that's a sad fairy tale because I think all children should be able to live in a safe, you know, environment and, they're not living that in some yeah. for some instances. So it's a genre bending exploration, and I sure. make some arguments there. Um, I hope some people give it a chance. I know yeah. it's definitely not a traditional narrative structure. Cool. That I like to play with. Um, a lot of my writing is experimental. If you even look at the Into the Forest, it's like the poem, and right beneath the poem, you'll have an information card, like their name date, the race, the investigating agency phone number. So I think that's what's, I mean, we should be allowed fiction writers and poets and creative nonfiction writers to explore and play with form. Absolutely. So I feel like that we're bound to any convention. Uh, yeah. Oh no. Uh, yeah. I, I agree. And you know, that's one of, in my writing, I, I love just mashing things together and, and if they work, they work. And if they don't, they don't, but I like to take something I love and, you know, smash it into something else I love and see if it makes, you know, something really fun, you know, and if uh, I have to do a different form of whether I have to make it poetry or whether it has ends up being just an odd form of fiction, then, you know, that's, that's the way it's got to be, I guess, you know. When we sit down to write, we're writing for ourselves. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm lucky that a lot of my writing, it's things that I want to sit down and this is what I want to say and that's how I want to say it. Of course, I've been I've been commissioned to do things and it's like you're more right. restricted. Right, right. Write for myself, like which is what I did with Into the Forest and Children of Chicago. I wrote what I wanted to read. Right. And uh, recently Snow White's Shattered Coffin uh, is – also poetry in the same vein? It is uh, fiction. Oh, it's fiction. I'm sorry. Yeah. So Snow White's Shattered Coffin is a um, it's a chapbook that I did with – it came from Beyond Pulp. It's a micro publisher here in Chicago, and it's, mm-hmm. so, um, it has accompanying illustrations. And it is, again, a fairy tale set in Chicago that doesn't end well. <laughs> <laughs> it's short so for people that kind of want for people that either you don't have the time or i mean you know it's uh, the price points like half of or less than half or it's mm-hmm. than what children of chicago's hardcover is so if you want to support a micro publisher i mean it came from beyond folk uh snow white's shattered coffin is based on oh. some folklore in chicago that people might like and that 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 work is more of a traditionally grounded horror. So like my okay. children of Chicago, I kind of prompt you like, you know, warning. 
traditionally grounded horror story. It's going to be exploratory or it's going to have experimentation and genre bending. It's going to have nonfiction. So if you hate nonfiction and you're writing, probably stay away from Children of Chicago. (laughs) If you wanted something traditionally grounded in horror, what a horror story, Snow White's Shattered Coffin. Great. Uh, I'm running out of time here, but there are two things that I, I had to mention. And uh, first is to congratulate you on having a, a brand new office. That's got to be fun. Yes, I'm sitting in it right now. Oh, I, it's just, you know, I, uh, I'm i a big proponent of being able to write wherever you, you know, wherever, anywhere. But to have your own space and to have that dedicated, you know, just to sitting down and writing and working, you know, for you, it just feels good. I mean, it's very helpful to my process, at least. It's, I'm, I'll post more, I'm almost done. I'm waiting for a few things. Um, I am just finally happy to have like a space, like it, it makes a difference. Like I come in here and I can just think in here. So I think if you're a writer, I think it's important to have your own space, whether it's a little nook. Mm-hmm. Right. If you have, you know, a place in the basement and go for it. Right. Absolutely. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about, um, I was again, cruising through your social media and I found that there is a, scent from hell candle that smells like children of chicago or is modeled after children of chicago yes so um it was uh there was a we have a candle i i Mm -hmm. there's it's limited edition Mm -hmm. chicago candle and it's supposed to smell like you know the forest so dark fairy tale which is really cool so there's um you go to scents from hell uh, Mm -hmm. and they have really cool like horror themed candles like that's great. Yeah. There's a children of Chicago. It'll, it'll make your house smell like you're in the enchanted forest. <laughs> I saw on your feed people that uh, that uh, tagged you and said, hey, I've got the candle. I'm, I'm reading next to the children of Chicago candle as it burns. That's great. That is a really neat sort of tie and fun thing to do, you know? I thought that was really cool. So, yeah. yeah. It'll smell like a, you're out in the enchanted forest, uh, you know, just be careful of dark shadows because it could be the Pied Piper coming again. <laughs> there you go. I think it's a good place to end it. Um, congratulations again on all the terrific things that are happening. And uh, uh, Cynthia Palio, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for Something From Nothing. Big thanks to Cynthia Palio, Mercedes Yardley, and Mark Boker for being here. Go to sfnpod.com. To find all our social media and whatnot and tell us all your deepest, darkest secrets. Not too dark, though. I don't want to be awake all night, okay? Have a good day, and I'll talk to you soon.
I'm Drew. I'm Phil. And I'm Kyle. We host the Movie Wars podcast. We pit the most legendary films of all time against one another using our theoretical scorecard, which consists of some classic categories like best cast, as well as off-the-wall categories like which gang would you rather be in from our Goodfellas vs. The Godfather episode, or who would you rather be eaten by, the shark or the T-Rex from our Jurassic Park vs. Jaws episode. And our matchups aren't always obvious. We go out of our way to find connective tissues between the films we choose. You won't want to miss randos, which is the result of us doing hours of research and preparation for each show. You're guaranteed to hear facts that you won't even find in the deepest corners of the internet. Check out episodes like There Will Be Blood versus No Country for Old Men and Total Recall versus Minority Report. If you want to hear a hilarious and informative approach to stacking the greatest films of all time against one another, check out Movie Wars.